All right, if you want to join me in Numbers chapter 8, we didn't quite make our way out of the 8th chapter together last time, so we'll tie up the rest of chapter 8 as we continue working our way through the book of Numbers. The 8th chapter, as we saw looking at together last time, was really sort of the dedication of the Levites, or we might call it the ordination ceremony of the Levites. Remember, they were that chosen tribe that God selected really in replacement to the firstborn. God had laid claim to the firstborn in the children of Israel saying that they belonged to him. But then God said that what he was going to do was to take the Levites instead of them. And the Levites then became that designated tribe to uh, officiate the aspects of the tabernacle ministry, to handle the affairs of the tabernacle ministry. It's from the tribe of Levi that the family line of Aaron came forth and gave to us the the priesthood as well. But uh, the Levites were in chapter 8 sort of being uh, prepared. Aaron and his sons, the priests, had already experienced their ordination service. And now in chapter 8, God was taking them through a process of how they were to prepare and ordain and recognize those who were the Levites and the ministers and servants among the children of Israel. Uh, We left off there in verse 18, so let's pick it up in verse 19, where here God speaking in the midst of this, kind of tying it up. He says, verse 19 of chapter 8, And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. So we see a few of the reasons God mentions here that the Levites were put into their position of service uh, and how they were to function. Some of these things are reiterated that we've already looked at and studied together before. But interesting how God, having just said in the prior verses, verse 14 down through verse 18, repetitively how the Levites are mine, they're wholly given to me, I've taken them for myself, indicating their lives belong to him. God says, I've claimed their lives, their lives belong to me, and since they belong to God, God can do with them what he wishes as far as his servants. And notice what God specifically says in verse 19 regarding their lives being given over to him. God says, and I have then given them, the Levites, as a gift to Aaron and his sons to do the work of the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting. So here God specifies how he gave the Levites, specifically it says here, to the priests, to Aaron and his sons, to basically help serve and support them in their ministry of the priesthood. So uh, just a very interesting thing. Basically the Levites, God is saying to us here, I like the language, given them as a gift to Aaron and to his sons. In other words, God's saying their role and function was to be supportive. That was their ministry calling. They were basically to fulfill whatever the priests needed. Uh, They were to serve in an assisting type function. They were come alongside Aaron and his sons. Remember, there were only a few uh, necessary to serve actually as priests, the high priest himself, and then a few priests along with him from the family of Aaron and the household line of Aaron's house. But remember, how many priests, uh, excuse me, how many Levites there were, we saw in recent uh, chapters together, over 22,000 Levites. So you just have a few people functioning as priests, but you have over 22,000 Levites 
given by God as a gift to Aaron and his sons to serve as assistance to the priests, to serve in the supportive capacity uh, where they would basically be a gift to help fulfill whatever the priests needed, whether it was practical needs or helping tend to aspects of the work of the tabernacle of meeting to basically come alongside and uphold the work that the priesthood was doing. Again, I just think this is such a beautiful thing because it's a reminder to all of us as they served in that capacity and that was their spiritual calling uh, that we can all of us at times I think be a real gift when we serve someone in a supportive capacity here God says of the Levites whose role was to assist and to support and to fulfill the needs that would help uh, supplement and fulfill the role of the priesthood given as a gift to Aaron in an assistive sense. Uh, I think it's beautiful to realize that to this day still, you know, our calling at times in different roles and capacities of life God may have us in, we can be a real gift to serve someone in an assistive capacity. Maybe it's in a, a job setting and the Lord puts you subservient to someone else or you know, whatever it may be. Maybe in a ministry capacity. Maybe it's in a marital capacity. Maybe it's in some organization where you're not necessarily maybe the lead person, but God brings you alongside to be a, 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 a supportive assistant type person who helps be given as a gift to that person to make what they do uh, flow more successfully and fluently kind of like a uh, you know it comes to my mind like a like a caddy uh, serves to help a competitive golfer and if you ever watch competitive golfers uh, they don't just select anybody as their caddy now I'm not real big into golf but I do understand that beyond just being some guy with strong shoulders that can carry your bag uh, typically their caddy is somebody who's a strategically selected person someone who can offer counsel and input in regards to eyeing up where they're going to uh, you know, shoot from and maybe what club to select. But when you look at the caddy, all they look like they're doing right is, is walking alongside uh, the guy that's making all the money and pulling the right club out of the bag and handing it to him and taking it from him and wiping his club off. And, but look, all those things are essential. They're critical. Uh, th that's a, a cooperative effort to help that competitive golfer excel and achieve to the best of his ability what he has in a sense set out to do and and you know what I, I what a neat thing to realize we can sometimes be spiritual caddies to people uh, you know I, I think of how the few years prior to before we went out and planted our first church in 1999, those earlier years in 1990 when we were uh, serving with our pastor there and, and how, you know, I, I just, this is what I really sensed that my, my heart and my calling was, was to basically function in an assistive way and to do everything I could possible to make it as easy uh, for our senior pastor to do everything that God called him to do without encumbrances or hindrances or anything that would hold him back. In fact, I almost made it my ambition to try and make sure I always was on the property before he was and to almost anticipate what he wanted done almost to the point where I, I found myself somewhat trying to study and understand his heart and what things I would see him doing in such a way that I could anticipate in advance if I don't do that, he will. 
And I don't want him to have to do that. So therefore, let me see if I can anticipate and do those things and to try and make myself a gift and a blessing in that way. I look at the years of ministry since the Lord's had me in a senior pastor role. And I think of the few people along the way that have just really, they've been like a gift from the Lord. And you just, Lord, thank you for this. I mean, this person truly, it's like you gave me a gift in this individual uh, where they function kind of like the Levites here in that supportive way. I think every wife has the opportunity to do the same thing. Again, when you think from the book of Genesis, God calls a, a, a husband to find a, a help me. God says, I'll make a help me that's compatible that's suitable and to be able to come alongside and say hey how can I assist my husband how can I do things to complement who he is and what God's purposes are for his life and how can I do things basically to be a gift in his life to support and to complement and to address certain things so that what he does he can do more successfully and with ease and without additional burdens and you know I just think of so many ways how we can function in that capacity and you know what that is no less important than the person who's in the point role or the lead role uh, in fact again as I said before you only needed a few priests you needed 22,000 plus Levites to function in that capacity and from God's perspective they were just as critical just as essential God gave them this calling and I just think it's such a really beautiful example and a great reminder you know maybe look around maybe there's someone God wants you to caddy for uh, someone God wants you to come alongside and try and function in that way where you can be a gift to them like these Levites were given as a gift to Aaron and his sons specifically. Verse 20, he then goes on to saying, Thus Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses according to the Levites, so the children of Israel did to them. And of course, this is just referencing back to uh, the things earlier in the chapter that were described now. It's just saying that they did and complied with what God commanded back in the earlier part of chapter 8 that we studied. And the Levites, verse 21, purified themselves, washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them like a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, that is after they went through this protocol that God prescribed for the Levites, after that, then the Levites went in to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons as the Lord had commanded uh, concerning the Levites, so they did to them. Verse 23, and then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform the service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at that age, 50 years, they must then cease performing this work and shall work no more. They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to needs, but they themselves shall do no work. The idea is no more manual work, the physical labor of carrying around the tabernacle structure. And thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duty. So here in verse 23 through 26, God gives a little more insight into the role and responsibility of, of the Levites. Now, remember back in the earlier chapter, we saw there that the Levites, it said, were to begin their time of service, their ministry service, at age uh, 30, and then they were to cease their ministry at age 50, sort of go into a, a retirement mode. Now here we find in chapter 8, 
where the Holy Spirit says that from 25 years old, they were to enter in to perform the service of the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, uh, what this seems to be indicating to us, I believe anyway, it seems there was potentially a five-year training period. Uh, where uh, for maybe the first five years from 25 to 30, they sort of functioned, the Levites did, in like an apprenticeship where they were the apprentice to an older Levite. And for those first five years from 25 to 30, they were trained. Uh, they were spiritually allowed time to mature and to grow as men and develop. And uh, they were in a place where they were uh, learning the different roles and functions and the requirements of what their ministry entailed. And then specifically for those five years, they were training. And then at age 30, they would then enter into their official independent service, if you would, to serve as a Levite in the capacity God called them to. And they would serve in that capacity for a 20-year stint. Not bad, 20 years of service. And at 50, uh, you basically then retired uh, from your role of uh, the Levite and you didn't retire in the sense that you just then went off to a, a nice golf course and did nothing the rest of your life. If you notice, uh, at age 50, it just said they were to cease from performing this work and should work no more. Now, again, what was the primary responsibility of the Levites? We've talked about it. It was carrying the tabernacle furnishings as they journeyed all around the wilderness. A lot of what they did was physical manual labor they would set up the tabernacle they would tear down the tabernacle they would transport the tabernacle so this was manual labor and god in his mercy and grace says look okay by the time they get to around 50 years old god says uh, uh that kind of physical manual labor it's taken its toll and at that point it's time to start giving the body a break let the younger guys in the years when they can handle that do that but god said around 50 it's time to start cutting back on that the body's just not cut out to handle that physical manual work anymore. So at age 50, they would sort of just go into a new season of their ministry. Notice that's why verse 26 says, though they cease performing the work, they may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle to attend to needs, but they shall no longer do the work that is the manual work. It seems this new season after age 50 would be a time when they just became less hands-on and I believe probably became in an advisory role those who were training those young men from age 25 to 30 in that time of apprenticeship. At this point, after their time of serving had been done, they were now mature, they were seasoned ministers, and they now stepped back from the active role of what they were doing, and they then served in an advisory function. It just became a new role. They were now advisors and trainers probably of those young men to equip and ready them how to understand properly their role in ministry and to be trained and equipped as they went through those five years of apprenticeship. And they probably addressed more personal needs at this time. They would care for the needs of people. They probably were counselors and serving in other ways rather than just the physical manual labor. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, Notice now, in the first month of the second year, so basically now we're about you know, one year out of the time they came out of Egypt. Uh, they've been in Sinai for about 11 months or so by this point. After they come out of the land of Egypt, and God said, let the children of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of the month at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time 
according to all its rites and ceremonies, you shall keep it. So Moses told the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did. So at this point, again, keep in mind, we're going to see in just a few verses ahead, the children of Israel are about to officially depart on their wilderness journey as they head towards the promised land. And at this point, as I said, it's been about a year now, time frame that's elapsed since they celebrated the first Passover at the time when God drew them out and delivered them out of their bondage in Egypt. And remember, when God instituted the Passover, he told them that this was something they were to observe annually. It was a, a, a feast, a celebration, if you would, that God instituted. It was an ordinance given to the children of Israel that God said, I want you to celebrate this every year at the appointed time on the 14th day of the first month is when they were to celebrate it. And now they're around that time frame again. And God says, look, tell them it's time to keep the Passover. Tell them it's time to pause and to reflect and to remember and to celebrate what I've done for them so that it will be fresh in their minds as they begin their new journey into the wilderness. And God reminds them to observe this once again here in verses one through five and just reiterates some of the criteria. But God is basically saying, remind them, Moses to keep the Passover that was appointed for them. So Moses, it says, verse four, told them that they should keep the Passover and verse five, they kept the Passover. Now, again, what was the Passover we saw before? It was basically a, a way that God put into a celebration for them to reflect upon and remember what God had done for them, how the wrath of God, remember, had passed over their lives at the time when God brought judgment through the camp of Egypt there as they applied the blood post to their door and their lentils of an innocent lamb, the wrath of God, the death angel, passed over their lives and God's wrath did not come upon them when he saw the blood marking and at that same time, God then also would deliver them out. It was a salvation experience. Someone, he delivered them out from under their bondage and liberated them from the slavery that they had been in. A very beautiful picture, of course, of salvation. Now, God wanted them to continually celebrate this at an appointed occasion once a year because he wanted them to be in remembrance of this. He didn't want them to forget his deliverance. He didn't want them to forget what he had done in their lives. He didn't want them to begin to diminish the importance and the probably no doubt the wonder of when it had first happened. And so God said, I need you to continually put in remembrance of these things, of my mercy to you, of my deliverance for you, of the wonderful thing I did in your life. Now, as Christians, we celebrate communion as the result of Jesus on the Passover the night before he was crucified, instituting the Lord's Supper amidst the Passover feast that he was celebrating with his disciples. And one of two ordinances given to us as Christians in the New Testament church is water baptism and the celebration, secondarily, of communion or the Lord's Supper. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians 11, says this, For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, and the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. So in the same way they used to celebrate Passover in remembrance of that event, now Jesus says, I want you to do this, the bread and the cup, and I want you to do this in remembrance of me, to remember him and what he has done for us as Christians. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So again, as Christians, we are instructed by God to celebrate communion. Jesus clearly says, you know, this consider, this is, no, Jesus said this do. He said, do this in remembrance of me. I think it's important that we remember as Christians. Yeah, we, oh, we're not under the law. We're, we're under grace, man. Look, I understand that. But at the same time, we don't just discount the commands of God. Jesus said, celebrate communion. So the commands of God are still the commands of God. So Jesus said, celebrate communion. He said, do this. As Christians, this is something. Now, we're not given an appointed time like Passover and some of the feasts were established dates on their calendar. But yes, we're under the law of grace. But Jesus said, this do as often as you do. In other words, it's something we should do. We should be observing it, and we should be observing it often, periodically. We should be celebrating it and remembering what the Lord has done for us. Verse 6 tells us this. As they're about to celebrate the Passover, there were certain men who were defiled by a human corpse. So somehow somebody had died nearby them and they were contact with the dead person in some capacity, which would make them, remember, ceremonially unclean, which would mean they couldn't observe things that others were, particularly the Passover. So these certain men, somehow they had become defiled by a corpse. So they could not, verse 6, keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron And those men said to him, we've become defiled by a human corpse. In other words, this was an accidental thing. It wasn't something they had purposely done. They they just circumstances dictated what had happened. They're now ceremonially unclean and they're troubled in their hearts because they want to celebrate the Passover. They say, why are we kept from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the children of Israel? So again, Put yourself in their sandals. They're thinking, stink. We only get to do this one time a year. And that's the one time that Fred's got to drop dead in my arms on the job site. Stink. I got to wait all the way till next year because the guy swinging the chisel next to me happened to just die on the spot or something. I mean, these guys' hearts are great. They are genuinely just kind of sad and thinking, Moses, what do we do? You know, this is a bummer. Why can't we now celebrate the Passover because we've become ceremonially unclean. Is there anything that that can be done for us? Which, let me just say this, this is a beautiful thing because it shows they really saw it not as an obligation. They saw it as a privilege. They saw celebrating Passover not as a duty and, oh gosh, yeah, got to do the religious thing. Got to do the obligation. I got to, no, they saw it as a privilege. They wanted to celebrate Passover. They wanted to participate in the worship of God's people together with them in that ceremony. They wanted to celebrate the Passover meal and remember and reflect upon what it meant to them. So they were genuinely disappointed. So they come to Moses and pose this question. What do we do? We're kept now. Well, verse 8, Moses said to them, stand still. And that's hard for all of us, isn't it? 
that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. So they come to Moses and they pose this to him out of the genuineness of their heart. And Moses here, fantastic example, not only as a leader, but also as a spiritual man, Moses basically says, you know what? That's a good question. I don't know what we're supposed to do in relation to that. I I hear your heart and, 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 you know, boy, that is a bummer that you would have to be, in a sense, you know, set aside and miss the Passover celebration because this inadvertently happened and you became ceremonially unclean. So he says, you know what, I'm honestly not sure what God's will would be in this situation. But he says, here's what I think we ought to do. Let's just wait. You stand still. And he says, let me go and seek the Lord and hear what the Lord will command concerning you regarding this matter. Now, I think this is just incredible wisdom on Moses' part because it reminds us that sometimes it's okay to admit that we don't know God's will in a certain matter. We don't always, as Christians and certainly as leaders, to have to think that we automatically have the right answer and conclusion on every situation. There are times I find in my life, I hope you do too, where perhaps it's not always clear what God's will may be in regards to a situation. Maybe somebody poses a question or says, look, what do we do in this situation? Or how do I handle this? And maybe it's just not clear. Maybe sometimes the reason it's not clear is because maybe that particular question that's uh, presented, uh, it's not directly addressed in Scripture. I'm sure that's never happened to any of you before, right? When you kind of had a question on something, it's not something that honestly is directly addressed in Scripture. And those are occasions where the right thing to do is not to just make a hasty decision or jump to conclusions or Moses just didn't feel pressured because they were saying, Moses, he didn't let the pressure of their request or any, or even his own arrogancy to just think he had to give an answer so that he looked spiritual. He said, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure, but here's what I will do. I'll commit to praying about it. And so why don't you wait and let's just stand still and let's see what the Lord would command concerning you. Let's see what he would say. Let's see what God might direct and what he would give counsel and guidance. Again, James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God and he'll give it. And he'll never abrade us or the idea is be upset with us because we asked wisdom. In other words, God's never going to be like, is he you again? You can't figure that out by yourself by this point. God's never going to do that. He appreciates that we don't lean on our own understanding, but that in all our ways we acknowledge him and let him direct our path. So Moses says, I'm not really sure. Let's, let's seek God. And again, there are going to be occasions that arise where what we need to do is what Moses does here, and that's this. We need to give God room to weigh in. Sometimes that's our mistake as believers is we're not willing to just patiently stand still and say, look, let's just kind of pray through that a little bit. Not really 100% clear, but let's give God room to weigh in on that subject. Let's give God the opportunity to speak into our lives and to just kind of give some clarity and direction. So just a a great example here seen by Moses in this whole situation. And and look, verse 9 is great encouragement. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Moses says, let's wait, let's pray, and God answers and gives direction and clarity. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, 
saying, if any one of you or your posterity is unclean because of a corpse or is far away on a journey, in other words, you're traveling to some foreign country on business or you're out of the area for some reason, he may still keep the Lord's Passover, God says. And God says how to do it. Verse 11, on the 14th day of the second month. So one month later, on the 14th day, God says, they could still celebrate the Passover and keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones. According to all the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. So look at this. Celebrating the Passover, viewed as a privilege, these guys come with a genuine heart. They want to celebrate it. They raise this question and say, what do we do? I mean, this is only an annual opportunity. And look what God does. God makes a gracious provision for these sincere hearts that genuinely want to worship him and observe the Passover. He makes a gracious provision, you could say, an exception so that they could still celebrate the Passover. Which shows us a few things. First of all, it reminds us that God is a lot more interested in the heart when it comes to worship than he is the rule and the regulation and the letter of the law. God doesn't say, mm, no, sorry, it has got to be on the 14th day of the first month. That is the only day possible that I could enjoy together with you. God doesn't do that. God is very gracious. And here's the thing. I think we shouldn't overlook. A lot of times God's a lot more flexible than we think he is. A lot of times God's a lot more gracious than we think he is. He's often not quite as rigid as we prospect. Again, does God live and expect us to operate and live within the confines of his recorded and written word? Yes, absolutely. But outside of that, there are times when God is very, very gracious. Paul talks about in Romans 14 how you know, one person esteems one day over another, another person esteems every day the same, and he says, look, let each person be persuaded in his own mind. In other words, look, you know, it, it, sometimes it's a conviction thing. And, and here God just graciously makes this exception when he sees this genuine desire to want to worship him. Now here's what's interesting. He just says, look, just observe all the other aspects of how to celebrate the Passover, but a month later you can still celebrate it. Verse 13, he says, but the man who is clean, in other words, a person who's not ceremonially defiled and who's not on a journey, in other words, they're not prohibited because they're out of town. Legitimately, they are available and able to celebrate it. That same person, he says, if they cease to keep the Passover, that same person shall be cut off from among his people because he did not bring the offering of the Lord at its appointed time that man shall bear his sin and if a stranger dwells among you and would want to keep the Lord's Passover he must do so according to the rite of the Passover and according to its ceremony you shall have one ordinance both for the stranger and for the native of the land so look at this God makes a gracious flexible provision for these men who genuinely want to worship and say, look, what are we going to do when other occasions arise? Somebody's ceremonially unclean, they're on a journey out of town and they can't control that so they're not present to celebrate it. God makes a provision. But then God also says, beyond what they've asked, look at verse 13, but he says, however, for the man who is ceremonially clean and they're not on a journey, they are able and available to be able to participate in the worship and Passover, yet they cease 
to keep the Passover. In other words, uh, the idea is they're just not really interested in keeping the Passover or, you know, for whatever reason, they don't really care. The idea is maybe their mindset, well, I mean, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, I'll catch it next year. I just, you know, it's been a busy year. I'll catch it next year. And in their heart, there's sort of a spiritual apathy or an indifference, and they sort of just shrug off the Passover observance is rather unimportant or, you know, I mean, it's not really that necessary. You know, I'm doing pretty good spiritually. I really don't need it. I'll, I'll pick it up next time. I'll, I'll celebrate it next time. Those who had that attitude and just sort of shrugged it off, look at verse 13. God says, they shall be cut off from their people. And verse 13 says, and bear their sin. That's pretty severe. God says, the person who shrugs off the observance of this is apparently in sin before God, apparently spiritual apathy is quite displeasing to the Lord. And apparently spiritual apathy is also pretty dangerous in his influence because God says that person shall bear their sin and they're to be cut off from among the people of God because potentially probably the influence of that spiritual apathy can be very contagious and somewhat unhealthy for others. So again, what an interesting thing here to see these things laid out and just reminders to us, you know, that when we're spiritually apathetic and we kind of shrug off the things of God, that's displeasing to the Lord. When we're available and able to worship, to gather with God's people, to, you know, celebrate communion, these kind of things, that matters to the Lord. It really matters to his heart. And uh, many times when we shrug those things off or deem them as unnecessary or unimportant, uh, it's an indication of where we're at spiritually before the Lord. And here God addresses that within this section. Verse 15, he says, Now on the third day that the tabernacle, or on that day, excuse me, that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony from evening until morning, It was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. And so it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle after the children of Israel would journey and in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. That's where they would stop and set up camp. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey. And so it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. And so it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning. So only a 24-hour span at times. When the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey whether by day or by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey But when it was taken up, they would journey. And at the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. And at the command of the Lord, they journeyed and kept the charge of the Lord, the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Are you guys freezing over here with the air conditioning on? Okay, I can feel it blasting down. So why don't we cut that back? Um, You know, 
God here almost like five times, if you notice, verse 16 down through verse 23, the repetition in the language here is emphasizing how he was leading the children of Israel uh, through the wilderness as they begin their journey. They had this blessed privilege where the presence of God was manifest, it says here, in a pillar of cloud by day, verse 16, and the appearance of fire by night. And as it says throughout these verses continuously, whenever the cloud was taken up, and it would journey forward. That was the children of Israel's indication. Okay, the presence of the Lord is on the move. God's wanting us to move to a new location. And they followed the guidance and the leading of the Lord. And then when that cloud would stop, they knew the presence of the Lord had settled. And that was the new location that they were to stop and they were to settle. And of course, it references how that was the way that God led them. It was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Now, that cloud, keep in mind, was really God's merciful preservation. If you think of the way that it functioned in a practical sense, it shielded the children of Israel. It was a cloud by day. Where were they? They were in a desert. Uh, so God was shielding them from the desert sun on top of providing guidance for them. And at night, somehow that cloud would then morph, it says, into a fire, the appearance of fire, which... Again, keep in mind how practical. At night, that fire provided, no doubt, probably some warmth. Typically, uh, desert areas become colder in the evening. But more than that, if, the, if necessary, it also provided light for them in order to provide guidance and direction for them. And it also indicates to us this as well, as you think about that, the Lord's presence being with them, in a sense, you could say, made sure that they always had the restrained version of the full brunt of what they could have experienced in the desert and in the wilderness. Again, it shielded them. If you read Psalm 121, it kind of re-emphasizes re this almost as commentary of what this addresses here, how the pillar of cloud shielded them uh, from the brunt of the, the hot sun during the day. And it's just a reminder, I think, of how God's presence being with them as they moved and they went around was always making sure they always got the restrained version of the circumstances they could have been dealing with. And you know what? The wonderful thing about having God's presence in your life and staying in step with God's presence is that very thing is that no matter what you're going through in the journeys of your life, in the midst of your wilderness, not only is God wanting to lead you and leading you, but his presence with you, if you allow him to lead, always guarantees that we're getting the restrained version. No matter how hard it is, how difficult, how you know strenuous the times, it is always still the restrained version that we're experiencing because God's presence so many times is shielding and restraining from how much more difficult maybe the journey actually could be. And, and this just reminds us as you see how God led them, how God wants to lead his people in their journeys in life. But notice it was God that decided when they would move. God decided how often they would move. God was the one who decided where they would move. And God's guidance, especially like this, required some flexibility. You notice as you read through these verses here, there's no set pattern indicated here. There was just no simple formula that they could follow. I mean, how many times does the Holy Spirit have to say the same thing almost repetitively? Verse 19, he says, Even when the cloud continued long, many days, they stood still for many days. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? Lord, I'm ready to move. We've been in the same spot, this same position forever. 
We've been staring at the same scenery forever. Lord, we are ready to move. We're ready for a new season. We're ready for, but, but even if it remained many days, it was faith and obedience to say, Lord, no matter how many days until you move, we don't want to move. Because, Lord, we don't want to launch out or try and move forward and get ahead of the Lord. By the same token, we don't ever want to lag behind the Lord. When the presence of God very clearly manifest began to move, they were to move. So verse 20 says, when the cloud was above the tabernacle for a few days, they remained camped for a few days. Verse 21 says, even when the cloud remained only from evening to morning. Imagine that. You set up and, you get, and then all of a sudden, you know, you finally get, uh, and you, you plop down and, and tell the kids to go off a day and then all of a sudden, no, that cloud's not moving, is it? You, you gotta be kidding me. We, we just set up camp here. No, we set I mean, Lord, I mean, at least a couple of days. I mean, give us. But again, notice there, there needed to be flexibility. It was a life of faith. And it was God who was leading them, but it also meant that God was the one that decided when they would move. God decided where they would move. God decided how often they moved. And there was no formula or pattern. It didn't matter whether it was day or night. They needed to be willing to live by faith and be flexible and not formulate God's leading in their life. And it was a lesson for them. And I think it's a lesson for us when God leads in our lives. Listen, when you, when you mark out the, you know, the physical mapping of their journeys through the wilderness, you notice uh, that God never leads them from point to point, even in, in the shortest route. You know, we say that, you know, the, 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 you know, the shortest way from here to here is, is, is in a straight line. But the way that God works, that's not always the case. Sometimes God takes us over there and then he brings us back here and then he brings us back over there and then he brings us over there. And, and our role is very simply to just stay in step with the Lord's guidance and direction. And that is the safest place to be is to just wait on the Lord's leading. Let God's presence direct when and where and how often we move in the different ways that he's guiding us. But the encouraging thing is God wants to guide us in our journey. He wants to guide you in your journey. He'll take you through that journey. And if you let him guide, his presence will restrain and keep you, whether it's two days or a month or a year, just stay in step with the Lord's journey. Now, with the Israelites, the thing we look at here is we realize, wow, you know, we almost with somewhat envy look at him and think, boy, God's guidance, you want to talk about it was continual? It, it was visible. It was always accurate. How could you mess that up? I mean, you got to be pretty rebellious to have messed that up. Other than just you see the cloud and you go the other way. I mean, that's, and we look at that and we think, boy, that, but for us today, we don't have a cloud that we follow around the wilderness. Keep in mind, this was a collective moving of an entire congregation of people. But as Christians, we are spread out all over the planet. And we're not all on the same journey like the children of Israel are. So God leads us individually by the indwelling presence of his spirit being inside of us. And the Bible says now today, 2 Corinthians and Hebrews, that God writes his will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts. And now through the impressions of God in our hearts, he puts desires in our hearts and he confirms those desires from his written word as the spirit is putting desires in our hearts. As we read the word of God and it speaks to us, it confirms things to us, keeps us within the safe boundaries of confirming what God's will is and then circumstances many times then also validate with open and closed doors. 
how the Lord leads us in our lives. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. So this is sort of the way practically at times they would also journey in different ways. Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work and use them for the calling of the congregation. That was one purpose. And also for the directing of the movement of the camp. So here we kind of see at times when they would move in different locations and for different purposes and reasons. So that again, there was order among the congregation of God's people, God now institutes here the use, very practically, he says to Moses, make two silver trumpets. Now notice, these are not the shofar or the ram's horn. We've talked about them before. These are two silver trumpets. Uh, Josephus uh, indicates that these were likely long, like you know, if you picture the medieval days, the person come out to make the announcement, the long tube with a kind of bell end on it as they would blow the trumpet. There were these two silver trumpets. This isn't the ram's horn, the shofar. And they were used for different purposes to call the congregation together, to direct the movement of their camps. Look, verse 3, when they blow both of the trumpets, that meant all the congregation was to gather at the door of the tabernacle of meeting when both trumpets blew. Verse 4, but if they blew only one trumpet, well, that was a distinction. They knew, okay, only one trumpet. Then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, were then to gather together to receive probably instruction for the leaders that was specifically needed. So there was a distinction there. Verse 5, another way, when you sound the advance, the term seems to be a blast, a certain distinct type of blast, the camps that lie on the east side shall then begin their journey and when you sound the advance the second time, then the camps that lie on the south begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. And when the assemblies to be gathered together, you shall blow, but not sound the advance. So these were different types of blasts and signals that they became familiar with so that they knew what to do and what not to do as a people. And when the assembly, verse 7, is to be gathered together, you shall blow, but not the sound of the advance. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, notice this was part of their role, the priests were to blow the trumpets to be put as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. Another way they use the trumpets, verse 9, when you go to war. So there was a certain uh, blast or signaled uh, sound that was made when they were to engage in warfare or when they were being attacked and they were to rally to defend themselves. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets and you will be remembered before the Lord your God and you will be saved from your enemies. A fourth reason we also see they use the trumpets, verse 10, also in the day of your gladness at your appointed feasts. At the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So another reason we see verse 10 there is they also use these trumpets to announce 
or to awaken the people when it was time to celebrate one of their feast days or their observances to, in a sense, indicate the, the institution that a new feast or holiday had come around and it was a time to assemble for worship and celebration. So uh, just an interesting thing here we see in chapter 10 how the Lord ordered the camp and directed the camp and they were directed by these trumpet blasts. Now, let me say this for us by way of application. Not only does it see that God wants us to be led in orderly ways, but here's, I think, something we can draw out of this for ourselves, is the, the Jews, the children of Israel, they lived in continual expectancy of a trumpet blast. And the Jews had to always, you could say, be willing and ready for their lives to be interrupted by a trumpet blast on any day and at any time. Now, does that sound familiar? The Bible tells us as Christians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we as well should be willing and ready for our lives to be interrupted by a trumpet blast on any day at any time when we are raptured and caught out of this world to go to be with Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17, for it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And what an awesome thing to realize that even as they lived every day with almost a sense of expectancy. Now, did they go about their normal duties all day, every day? Did they occupy and stay busy? Absolutely. But they also had a constant sense of expectancy because they always knew sometime soon they were going to hear the blast of a trumpet. And when that trumpet blast came, they needed to be ready for their life to be interrupted at any day, at any time. And that would make a transition when that trumpet blast sounded. And in the same way for you and I, Jesus said, occupy till I come. But we also as Christians are to realize that at any day, at any moment, at any time, the trumpet may blast and the Lord will catch us up. And the Bible says we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul adds, comfort one another with those words. Hey, look tonight, no matter where you're at in your journey... And sometimes the journey through the wilderness, through the desert, sometimes it's got some really hot and dry and difficult and barren times. But the wonderful thing is at any given moment, the trumpet may blast and we'll be with Jesus. And that is a comforting thing to hang on to. Father, we thank you.